York. This is Democracy Now! In my own mind, there's no doubt that he's being wrongfully detained uh, by Russia, which is exactly what I said to Foreign Minister Lavrov when I spoke to him uh, over the weekend and uh, insisted that uh, Evan be released immediately. The United States is denouncing Russia for detaining Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich on espionage charges. We'll speak to Evan's close friend and reporting colleague Josh Yaffa of The New Yorker magazine. We'll also look at the continued imprisonment in London of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. On Tuesday, Reporters Without Borders was denied entry to see him at the Belmarsh prison. No NGO has been allowed to visit Assange since his arrest four years ago. We'll speak to the head of Reporters Without Borders. We take the opportunity of being here today, again, in front of this jail, to call on for his release. Julian Assange has made a big, a very important, a crucial contribution to journalism. He made possible the revelations of war crimes. Then the undertow, scenes from a slow civil war. We'll speak with Dartmouth professor Jeff Charlotte about his new book on rising fascism in the United States. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israeli police raided the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in occupied East Jerusalem for a second straight night, attacking and forcibly removing Palestinians who were praying during the holy month of Ramadan. Police deployed stun grenades and fired rubber-coated steel bullets at worshippers. Earlier today, Israeli police escorted dozens of Israeli settlers into the Al-Aqsa courtyards. Meanwhile, witnesses say Palestinian men under the age of 40 are being barred from entering the mosque. Rockets were fired from the occupied Gaza Strip in response to the latest attack. On Wednesday, Israeli jets struck Gaza following another rocket fire in protest of the raid. Demonstrations took place in Gaza, Turkey, Jordan and elsewhere as international officials condemned the Israeli attacks on Al-Aqsa and warned against further acts of violence as Passover and Ramadan overlap. This is Riyad Mansour, the Palestinian ambassador to the United Nations. The Israeli occupying authorities has no right whatsoever ever to tell people when to pray and when not to pray. New research finds ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica melted at a far faster rate than previously believed at the end of the last ice age, raising fears global sea level rise could rapidly accelerate this century as modern-day glaciers collapse due to human activity. The report in the journal Nature found the Norwegian continental ice shelf retreated by as much as 2,000 feet per day. The findings came just days after another study in Nature found melting ice could soon cause deep ocean currents around Antarctica to collapse, with dire effects on the oceans and Earth's climate that could last centuries. The collapse could play out on a scale of just decades or even years. Saudi Arabia and Iran have agreed to reopen embassies, resume official visits and facilitate visas for their citizens during talks in Beijing. This follows a China broker deal last month between the two nations to restore diplomatic ties following a seven-year dispute. Meanwhile, French President Emmanuel Macron is also in Beijing, meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Macron stressed Xi's key role in helping reach a diplomatic end to the Ukraine war. L'agression russe en Ukraine a porté un coup 
The Russian aggression in Ukraine has dealt a blow to this stability. It ended decades of peace in Europe. I know I can count on you, moreover, under the two principles I have just mentioned, to bring Russia to its senses and everyone to the negotiating table. President Macron also said France and China agree that nuclear weapons should be excluded from the Ukraine war. China vowed to take unspecified actions after Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen met with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and a bipartisan congressional delegation in California Wednesday. Speaking from the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, McCarthy urged the Biden administration to expedite arms deliveries to Taiwan. President Tsai also spoke to reporters. In a discussion with congressional leaders this morning, I reiterated Taiwan's commitment to defending the peaceful status quo. I also highlighted a belief which President Reagan championed that to preserve peace, we must be strong. Ahead of the meeting, a Chinese aircraft carrier group was spotted in the waters off Taiwan's coast. China views any official visits or meetings with Taiwan as a challenge to its sovereignty. Former Vice President Mike Pence said he will not appeal a federal court's ruling requiring him to testify before a grand jury investigating the January 6 U.S. Capitol insurrection. Donald Trump's legal team could try to appeal the decision. This comes after a D.C. appeals court rejected an emergency request by Trump to block former aides from testifying before the grand jury, citing executive privilege. Those officials include former chief of staff Mark Meadows, former White House advisor Stephen Miller, and Ken Cuccinelli, who was Trump's act. Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security. This all comes as Trump faces an April 25th court date here in New York, where a civil suit brought by author E. Jean Carroll alleges Trump raped her in a dressing room at a department store in the mid-1990s. Indiana Republican Governor Eric Holcomb signed a bill Wednesday banning gender-affirming care for children. The new law, which takes effect July 1st, will require trans youth who are currently transitioning to stop taking medication by the end of the year. Twelve states now have such laws on the books after Idaho Republican Governor Brad Little signed a similar bill Tuesday evening. Meanwhile, Republican lawmakers in Kansas Wednesday successfully overrode Democratic Governor Laura Kelly's veto of a bill barring transgender athletes from competing on K-12 and college sports teams that match their gender identities. In Texas, the Justice Department has reached a tentative $144 million settlement with relatives and victims of the 2017 mass shooting at First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, which left 26 people dead. Victims sued the U.S. Air Force after it failed to report the shooter's history of violence to the FBI, which should have prevented the gunman from obtaining the assault rifle and other weapons used in the attack. The settlement came as students at more than 100 schools walked out of their classrooms Wednesday in a nationwide protest against gun violence. The walkouts included students in Uvalde, Texas, in Denver, Colorado, and Nashville, Tennessee, just some of the places across the U.S. where at least 74 people have been killed or injured by guns in schools so far this year. 
In Nashville, faith leaders held a peaceful sit-in protest at the state capitol inside the office of Republican Speaker Cameron Sexton. They were calling on the Tennessee legislature to abandon its plan to expel three state legislators today who supported students demanding gun safety protests. House Republicans, who hold a supermajority in Tennessee, are voting on the expulsions today. The legislators represent Tennessee's three largest cities, only two other lawmakers have been ousted from the Tennessee House representatives since the Civil War. To see our interview with Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones, visit democracynow.org. North Carolina Democratic State Representative Tricia Gotham announced Wednesday she's switching parties and will become a Republican. Her move gives a veto-proof supermajority to Republicans in the State House as they attempt to ram through new abortion restrictions, anti-LGBTQ laws and other measures. In Wisconsin, Republican lawmakers are already talking about impeaching the newly elected state Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasiewicz after her decisive win in Tuesday's election. Her victory gave Wisconsin's high court a liberal majority for the first time in 15 years and renewed hopes that Wisconsin's 1849 abortion ban can be reversed. This week, State Senator Dewey Strobel told The New York Times impeachment was not impossible. A Nevada in Nevada, a man is facing murder charges following a car ramming that targeted a food not bombs distribution site in Reno. 55-year-old Michelle Jardine was identified as the dead victim, while two others were critically injured. David Turner admitted to intentionally attacking the three. A new report by the Maryland Attorney General's Office finds nearly 160 Catholic priests and other members of the Archdiocese of Baltimore raped or sexually abused more than 600 people over a span of eight decades. Its authors called the breadth and depravity of the abuse astonishing. Just hours after the report was released Wednesday, Maryland's state Senate passed the Child Victims Act, which removes a statute of limitations to allow more survivors to sue people who sexually abuse them. Governor Westmore promised to sign the bill into law. The Maryland Catholic Conference opposed the bill and has signaled plans to challenge it in court. And in the Mediterranean, Doctors Without Borders says it rescued 440 migrants after responding to a distress call in rough seas off the coast of Malta Tuesday. The passengers were from Syria, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Egypt, Somalia and Sri Lanka, 30 of them children. Meanwhile, rights groups are condemning the U.K. government's latest anti-migrant move after it rented a massive barge where it says 500 asylum seekers can be housed while they wait for their cases to proceed. This is the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. We're bringing forward alternative sites, like indeed the barge that we've announced today, that will save us money and indeed reduce pressure on hotels, all part of our plan to stop the boats. We're also putting through Parliament a new law, which will ensure that if you arrive here illegally, you will not have the ability to stay. We will be able to detain you and then swiftly remove you to your own country if it's safe, or a third alternative, third country alternative like Rwanda. Amnesty International UK slammed the plan as ministerial cruelty. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, the United States is denouncing Russia for detaining Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich on espionage charges. We'll speak to Evan's close friend, as well as the head of Reporters Without Borders. Stay with us. <laughs> 
Let me tell you the story of a line that was held And many men and women whose courage we know well As with they held a line at Peekskill on that long September day We will hold the line forever till the people have their way Hold the line, hold the line As we held the line at Peekskill, we will hold it everywhere. Hold the line, hold the line. Hold the Line by Pete Seeger. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show looking at the case of Evan Gershkovich, a Wall Street Journal reporter who was arrested and jailed last week in Russia on espionage charges. He faces up to 20 years in prison if convicted. Russia's accused Evan of trying to obtain state secrets related to the Russian military. He had reported in Russia since 2017. His parents fled the Soviet Union before he was born. The Wall Street Journal accused Russia of arresting Gershkovich as part of a court Quote, calculated provocation to embarrass the U.S. and intimidate the foreign press still working in Russia. Press freedom groups have denounced his arrest and urge Russia to immediately release him. On Wednesday, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken said Gershkovich was being wrongfully detained. In my own mind, there's no doubt that he's being wrongfully detained uh, by Russia, which is exactly what I said to Foreign Minister Lavrov when I spoke to him. Uh, over the weekend and uh, insisted that uh, Evan be released immediately. Evan Gershkovich is reportedly the first U.S. journalist arrested on spying charges by Moscow since 1986. His arrest came just days after the United States indicted a Russian man who's currently in custody in Brazil. The U.S. claims the man was a spy who attempted to infiltrate the International Criminal Court. We go now to Berlin, where we're joined by Joshua Yaffa, a close friend of Evan Gershkovich. Josh is a contributing writer to The New Yorker magazine and has been the magazine's Moscow correspondent since 2016. He's recently been reporting in Ukraine. He's the author of Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition and Compromise in Putin's Russia. And Josh's most recent piece is headlined The Unimaginable Horror of a Friend's Arrest in Moscow. Josh, thanks so much for rejoining us on Democracy Now! Can you start off by talking about how you know Evan and talk about his history reporting in Russia and what he was doing before? Well, the world of Western and specifically American reporters in Moscow is, by definition, tight-knit simply because of its size. Uh, small even before the war, 10 or so at max uh, people who were permanently based in Moscow writing for American papers. And it didn't take long for, for all of us to get to know one another. I had been living in Moscow for some years when Evan arrived. Didn't take long to meet him. I was immediately impressed by his energy, his spirit, his curiosity, his love for Russia. Um, he is of Russian heritage. His parents were emigres uh, from the Soviet Union in the 1970s. Evan was born in America, very much American with that um, history, culture, and upbringing, but nonetheless uh, speaking Russian and with a deep appreciation for Russian history and culture. And, and it was that 
viewpoint that he brought to his coverage of Russia, insider, outsider, both having this deep familiarity with Russian language and Russian culture, but also having the outsider view that allowed him to um, look at Russia um, critically and and honestly, but with empathy and and curiosity. And that was a really, in Evan's case, um, fruitful journalistic cocktail that allowed him to do really great work, first at the Moscow Times, where he started upon his arrival in English language daily in um, in the Capitol, and then later the Wall Street Journal, where he started in January of, of 2022, as it turns out, just on the eve of Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine. So he, he started this job just in advance of, of what would be the largest and, and most decisive journalistic story for all of us. And so, Josh, can you uh, talk about the range of stories uh, that Evan covered, not just uh, while he was at the Wall Street Journal, but as you said, uh, working at the Moscow Times, and and why you believe uh, he was arrested now? Well, I was impressed from the very beginning by Evan's journalistic output. You might even say at times envious in a, in a collegial way. I remember his coverage at the Moscow Times of the pandemic in Russia, specifically the early days of the pandemic in Russia. He, and he did some really important path-breaking work, uh, scooping, in fact, uh, much of, or, or the rest of the American press corps in Moscow in those days, reporting on, for example, medical students Uh, from Russian universities who were forced into treating COVID patients to doing some of the first work that looked at the statistics surrounding COVID in Russia, talking to statisticians, getting sources from inside the state statistics agency that suggested the government was downplaying the COVID toll in Russia. That was a story that gained uh, momentum as the pandemic went on, but Evan was really among the first to to look at it. And going back even further, I remember a story he did about dying native languages in remote parts of Russia. He traveled to a region in Russia called Udmurtia, uh, which has a number of its own uh, native languages that are under threat, have been dying out since the Soviet period, come under even more pressure in post-Soviet Russia. And he wrote such a empathetic interesting, compelling feature about these dying languages and the people who try and keep them alive. It was a really human story um, and one that I, again, found myself thinking, man, that was really interesting to read. And I almost wish that I was the one to come up with it. But good for Evan to going for going off and um, and and reporting it. And, and it was that type of um, curiosity, that type of um, sort of industrious, energetic reporting that he brought to his work at The Wall Street Journal and to the reporting of the war, which, as I said, began just a month after he started at the journal. He was in Belarus Um, shortly after the war began, uh, where he saw Russian troops moving over the border into Ukraine and also coming out of Ukraine uh, as wounded, being taken to hospitals in Belarus. As to what might have uh, prompted his arrest now, it's, it's hard to say. We've witnessed since the start of the war, an unprecedented crackdown of the press in Russia, a further twisting of the screws, even compared to the very difficult and very pressurized environment that the press operated in in Russia, even in the years uh, before. Uh, I don't believe that this arrest has anything to do with Evans' work in the sense that he was, is a honest, uh, straightforward, professional journalist doing journalistic work. In other words, uh, I am convinced, as are all of his colleagues, who've done this work from Russia over the years, that there was nothing even remotely close to espionage or what is being alleged in Evans' work. He was doing journalistic reporting and investigations, just like um, all of us. Uh, and, and he was 
uh, arrested for reasons that remain opaque and unknown to me, but uh, but fit into a larger pattern and a larger trajectory of both uh, an increasing crackdown and intolerance of the press, even the foreign press in Russia, and a environment of um, spiraling downward relations between Russia and the United States. And if indeed Russia's goal here is to trade Evan for someone that it wants back that is in U.S. or European custody, this would also not be the first time. We saw this uh, last year with the arrest and trade of the basketball player Brittany Griner, for example. So this would fit into an existing pattern of Russian behavior. Josh, we'll return to that, how uh, uh, this might be, uh, th- these might be the conditions under which Evan is released. But I want to go to what you talked about. Uh, first of all, in the piece, you said that you don't believe that he could have been arrested without uh, Putin's uh, approval, uh, with the Kremlin spokesperson saying that Evan had been caught, quote, red-handed. Uh, so on the one hand, you have that, the, the, the likely state involvement, I mean, at the level of the Kremlin's involvement in his arrest, and then his uh, Russian journalist, uh, independent media colleagues who've come out in massive support uh, for Evan. A New York Times piece headlined, he told their stories of repression. Now they are telling his. So if you could speak about his relationship to uh, local Russian journalists, he was apparently known, the Wall Street Journal reported, uh, he was known by his Russian friends, not as Evan, but as Vanya. Well, that's right. V- Vanya being essentially the Russian equivalent of, of Evan. And, and that just speaks to the degree to which Evan was integrated into Russian society, really became a local even uh, in just a few years living in Moscow. That's partially thanks to his knowledge of the language and to his knowledge of the culture and history that he arrived to Russia with, but also speaks to his personality. He's just a friendly, open, gregarious, really funny guy, funny in both English and Russian, makes people around him feel good, feel comfortable, make them laugh. Um, And he did a remarkable job of, of making friends and making friends first and foremost in the journalistic community in Moscow, not only among the foreign journalists, as I spoke to a a few minutes ago, but as you mentioned, Russian journalists are our peers. In fact, this is the open secret of being a foreign correspondent anywhere in the world, Moscow included, that that part of the job is befriending the locals, the local journalists who have uh, extensive knowledge of the context, context, uh, deep contact within society, have their antenna up to stories that we might miss. And, and, and um, those relationships, friendly, professional, collegial and otherwise, um, are one just um, wonderfully enriching personally, but also professionally help us uh, do our job. And, and people within the Russian journalistic community, people who work at Russian independent outlets, whether print online, uh, TV, had a great fondness and respect for Evan, Vanya. Um, and it's no surprise that they've turned out in support uh, for him because Evan, like all of us, but, but Evan specifically, did such a good job of covering the many ways that the Kremlin put pressure on Russian independent journalists over the years, launching criminal cases against them, labeling them so-called foreign agents, driving them out of the country. And now is the time in, in which Vanya 
is in trouble, and they are really rallying uh, to his support. Do you think the Kremlin is particularly threatened by Western journalists who have this deep knowledge of Russia? Talk about uh, his parents, uh, Evan's parents, uh, coming to the United States uh, from the former Soviet Union as emigres, and his deep knowledge of Russia, and then where he was picked up in Yekaterinburg, the significance of what he was doing there. Right. Well, as we, as we talked about, um, Evan's parents uh, were born in the former Soviet Union, arrived to the U.S. in the late 70s. Evan himself was, was born in the U.S. as only a U.S. Uh, uh, citizen, but, but grew up um, with really a foot in both worlds, uh, steeped in American culture, a child of the 90s and early 2000s, but also having Russian parents who imparted on him not just a knowledge of the language, but of the entire um, cultural architecture uh, that, that comes with it, starting with cartoons um, as a young child and going all the way up to uh, to contemporary pop culture with Evan himself uh, immersed himself in. Um, and, and like we've talked about, that, that knowledge allowed him to really hit the ground running when he arrived in Moscow to work as a reporter um, five or so years ago and allowed him to penetrate very quickly and very deeply Russian society gain sources, navigate um, a very difficult reporting environment in, in Russia. It, even before the war, it was not the easiest place to show up and begin to work as a journalist. But but Evan was able to make contacts and develop sources um, relatively um, quickly and relatively deeply. At the time of his arrest, Evan was one of a handful of American reporters left in Moscow. Many departed Moscow after the start of the war last March. Russia passed a series of wartime censorship laws that effectively criminalized any honest or factual reporting about the war. That law has been used several times against Russian citizens and Russian journalists, but it, it has not uh, been used against Western or American journalists. And that led all of us, Evan himself to think that there continued to be a particular niche or safe space for foreign journalists to operate in Moscow, that we were free from the kind of repressive um, laws and pressures that Russian journalists uh, faced. And that gave us both a sense of duty and responsibility, but also um, a bravery of a sort that we were uh, representing or had a protected category, and that allowed us to move around the country and report on stories and subjects um, that had become very problematic, if not impossible, in many cases to do for our Russian colleagues. And Evan reported extensively on the aftermath of the invasion in Russia, what it meant for Russian society, uh, what it meant for Russian economy. He was among a number of authors for, I believe, of a massive investigation that came out in December about exactly how Putin himself gets information about the war, the degree to which Putin is isolated and doesn't necessarily get the most um, factual or up-to-date information about what his army is doing or achieving or not achieving on the ground um, in Ukraine. Um, he was arrested, as you mentioned, in Yekaterinburg, a city in the Ural Mountains. He was working on another story, by all accounts, connected um, to the Russian um, military effort um, and, and just shows the degree to which Evan is, uh, remains a, a committed reporter devoted to the story, devoted to telling the story with um, as much um, facticity as, as possible. And, and, and that means he was going places that other reporters weren't necessarily going. Like, for example, Peskov, another town in northwestern Russia where Evan went 
earlier this year, published a piece um, earlier this spring about Peskov and the reaction in Peskov, home to a number of Russian military units that suffered heavy losses in Ukraine to gauge the local reaction there. And and I and readers really benefited from these on the ground, very tactile and detailed reports. And Josh, finally, uh, we only have a minute. You said in the piece that espionage trials uh, in Russia almost always end in conviction, are held entirely in secret, and talked about what the possibility is for a prisoner exchange, especially given the fact that a lot of Russians that the Kremlin is interested in getting back are held not in the U.S., but in Europe. And one of the people you mentioned who might be uh, the person with whom an exchange might take place is Vadim Krasikov. So if you could uh, just elaborate on, on these things. Sure. I mean, this is definitely in the realm of speculation at this point. We don't know exactly what the Kremlin wants. The idea that the Kremlin has in mind a trade and effectively has taken Evan as hostage seems likely, but not yet um, confirmed. Um, if anything, Evan should be freed simply because he's innocent, not because uh, he could be traded for someone uh, that Russia wants back. But there are a number of figures linked to the FSB, like this assassin, Vadim Krasikov, who killed a Chechen um, in Berlin's Tiergarten some years ago, now held in German prison, um, has connections to the FSB. That could be someone that Russia wants wants back. Of course, if the person who that Russia requests in exchange for evidence being held in European custody, that will complicate the process because that means you know, it is not simply up to the U.S. to release that person, but would have to gain um, the agreement of a European country. All of that could potentially make negotiations more complicated. But but really, I want to emphasize that that's just speculation at this point, and, and Evan should be freed because he is unjustly uh, imprisoned and charged with um, false charges, not because uh, he is of value as an exchange um, hostage. Joshua Yaffa, I want to thank you for being with us. Close friend of Evan Gershkovich, contributing writer to The New Yorker. We will link to your piece uh, in The New Yorker magazine, The Unimaginable Horror of a Friend's Arrest in Moscow. Uh, thanks for joining us from Berlin. As we turn now to Paris to speak with Christophe Deloire, he is the— <clears throat> Uh, Secretary General um, of uh, Reporters Without Borders, um, Director uh, of Reporters Without Borders. Um, I want to ask you um, both about what you have said, um, uh, Christophe, about uh, Evans' detention. You said uh, the U.S. journalist detained in Moscow is clearly a Russian state hostage. And then we're going to talk about what happened to you this week. Um, you just came back from London, where you were denied a visit with WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks publisher, who spent the last four years locked up at the Belmarsh High Security Prison in London, while awaiting possible extradition to the United States, where he— like Evan, is being charged with espionage, but he faces 175 years in a U.S. prison. His crime? He released information about U.S. military in Iraq, in Afghanistan, State Department logs for decades. So start off with Evan and then move on to Julian Assange. So Ivan uh, is clearly a, a Russian state hostage, a sort of institutional hostage. Uh, if the Russian authorities would have a sort of good face, um, they would have clearly exposed some elements about what they have. Uh, 
As you mentioned previously, uh, according to the spokesperson uh, of the Kremlin, he was arrested, um, he was caught uh, red-handed. But after, what did we have? Nothing. Um, we saw and uh, we could notice a lot of violations of the rights uh, of defense, the legitimate rights that um, uh, a suspect uh, should enjoy. Uh, for instance, uh, the media were prevented from entering the courtroom. Uh, his own lawyer could not enter the courtroom when the decision to put him in, in detention was made. Um, and there are such elements and also the lack of uh, concrete evidences that clearly show that uh, the Russian authorities uh, have bad faith, that um, they have taken him um, because he was reporting in a, in a city with a military complex. And they said, this is spying. It consists in spying to just report, investigate in a city with uh, military plants. But um, uh, if, if I have a look at, at what they officially said, uh, um, uh, the FSB said he went there, uh, Ivan, to gather information about the Russian military industrial complex that constitutes a state secret. But that's legitimate for journalists to look for state secrets. It doesn't define spying. So uh, uh, clearly this is why we, we, we do defend uh, uh, Ivan, and clearly beyond his case. Um, this is a way to intimidate journalists, foreign journalists uh, in, in Russia, in the country. Um, we know how Putin succeeded in the past decade, uh, and uh, he fin finalized it uh, right after uh, the beginning of the war, how he succeeded to extinguish, to, to, to resuppress pluralism, independent journalism, uh, um, to, to provoke an extinction uh, uh, in his own country. Uh, I mean about Russian journalism. But some correspondents continue to, some foreign correspondents continue to work in, in, in Moscow and other cities. Um, a lot of them left previously, as uh, Ivan's friend mentioned, but some of them stayed. Uh, uh, for instance, uh, uh, French correspondents are there. Uh, but now, clearly, what happened to Ivan is an intimidation for them. So, Christophe, I wanted to um, go to you, actually, outside Belmarsh. You planned to be inside, but uh, were denied. On Tuesday, your group, Reporters Without Borders, RSF, attempted to become the first NGO to visit Julian Assange since his arrest four years ago. Despite being given prior approval, um, you were denied entry. Um, this is you outside the jail. We take the opportunity of being here today, again, in front of this jail, to call on for his release. Julian Assange has made a big, a very important, a crucial contribution to journalism. He made possible the revelations of war crimes. He should enjoy the First Amendment. Joining Reporters Without Borders was Julian Assange's wife, Stella Morris, who also spoke outside the prison. It is another instance of this uh, completely unjustified interference uh, with Julian's ability to try to conduct a political and also a legal defense against the U.S outrageous U.S. case against him. Um, 
It's the 4th of April today. Tomorrow will be 13 years since the release of the collateral murder video, revealing the killing of 12 civilians, including two Reuters Bureau uh, workers. We are now about a week away from the four-year anniversary of Julian being inside Belmarsh Prison. Julian's uh, presence in this prison is a scandal. It is a scandal on every level. How is it that they can prevent him from meeting with the Secretary General and the Global Campaigns Director of Reporters Without Borders? This is a, a shameful act. Christophe Deloire, if you could uh, uh, talk about that, you've said that this is only one of a series of obstacles that you've encountered right from the outset in dealing with this case. If you could explain uh, what exactly has been happening and, and what you hope will happen now. Will you uh, attempt another meeting soon? So what happened is that um, in the past years, we requested uh, to be able to visit Julian in his jail. Uh, we got an approval recently, which was confirmed on March 21st with a number, an official number, uh, for myself and my uh, colleague, uh, Rebecca Vincent. And uh, we were invited to come to the prison. And when we just arrived, the guy at the desk, when he saw my passport, he suddenly was very stressed and I've taken a paper on his office, on his desk, and, and I've read it saying, according to article, I do not remember the number of the article, but according to this article, you are not allowed to visit Julian Assange. Uh, this is a decision that I, has been made by the governor of the governor of, of the Belmarsh prison based on intelligence that we had, I quote him, uh, that you are journalists. And um, it doesn't make sense at all. Uh, first, because personally, I've been a journalist since uh, 1996, uh, and we were vetted. So and it was never a, a mystery uh, that I was a journalist, never a secret. Uh, second, my colleague wasn't a, a journalist herself. So, uh, and uh, we came here not as journalists, but as representatives of an international NGO with a consultative status in many international organizations. Uh, so it was really as reporters of borders representatives, not uh, as reporters covering the case. Um, so it, it doesn't uh, make sense for this second reason. And there is a third reason for which it doesn't make sense is that uh, already um, two journalists, at least, have been able to visit him in jail uh, in the past four years. So, and very quickly, Christoph, uh, Christoph, we just have a minute. But Stella Morris, his wife, says his health is deteriorating inside. She was allowed to go in because she does visit him. Do you see parallels between Evan Gershkovich in Russia uh, being held on espionage charges? They said he was um, trying to get military secrets from Russia. And Julian Assange, publishing U.S. military secrets, faces 175 years if extradited and found guilty in the United States. I, I would not compare at all the U.S. and Russia. The, the U.S. are ranked uh, 42nd in the World Press Freedom Index, Russia uh, 155th out of 180 countries. Uh, one country has the worst records, some of the worst records uh, regarding press freedom. Uh, the other one, the U.S., is defending uh, press freedom all over the world. But what is clear is that uh, the detention of Julian Assange uh, 
for his contribution to journalism is clearly an inconsistency. And on that, uh, really, we call on uh, the, the Biden administration and Joe Biden himself uh, to stop uh, this proceeding that uh, was launched under the Trump administration uh, so that the U.S. Um, can uh, clearly amplify their legitimacy uh, to defend press freedom everywhere. Christopher Delroy, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Christophe Delroy is the Secretary General, Director General of Reporters Without Borders, uh, RSF, Chair of the Forum on Information and Democracy. Coming up, the undertow, scenes from a slow civil war. Stay with us. Ooh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom over me. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. Everybody. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Sing it, sister. Freedom by Harry Belafonte, who our next guest writes about in his new book. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Perhaps the best day in history is what Donald Trump called his arraignment this week, when he became the first U.S. president ever charged with a crime. In a Truth Social post Wednesday night, he called those who indicted him radical left lunatics, maniacs, and perverts. This comes after Judge Juan Marchand, who's presiding over the case, asked Trump to tone down his attacks when Marchand and Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg and their families face multiple threats. Trump went after both the judge, the DA, their wives, the judge's daughter, as well um, the staffs are getting death threats. Well, our next guest spent the last decade reporting on how fascism has become a major threat in the United States and writes about it in his new book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Jeff Charlotte is an award-winning journalist and author, professor of English and creative writing at Dartmouth College, contributing editor at Vanity Fair magazine. His book debuted on the New York Times bestseller list just three spots behind far-right Florida governor Ron DeSantis, a possible Republican presidential challenger to Trump in 2024. Uh, Jeff, welcome back to Democracy Now! This is a powerful work. If you can put this aftermath of this historic moment, uh, the first um, sitting or former president charged with a crime, in the context of the work you've been doing as you travel the country, speaking to um, people deeply involved with the far right, supporters of Donald Trump. I think the indictment, uh, the arrest of Donald Trump, which I believe was the right thing to do, is also, unfortunately, the fulfillment of something that's been coming for a long time. 
I think of the Trumpocene, a term I borrow from my friend Jeff Ruoff, a filmmaker, the Trumpocene, the age of Trump in which his politics sort of defines a national conversation uh, as having three stages. One, the prosperity gospel, get rich. Two, a kind of dark conspiratorial kind of theology. But three now, starting on January 6, uh, 2021, the age of martyrs. And it began with Ashley Babbitt, the insurrectionist who was killed uh, at the Capitol and quickly became a martyr for the right. And I kind of think of her as holding a spot on the cross, a placeholder uh, that Trump was uh, keeping it warm until Trump could push her aside and heave himself up there. And that he's occupying the role of a martyr um, in the, the theology and the dream politic of, of fascism now. So, Jeff, if you could talk about, first of all, explain the title of your book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, why you believe there is a slow civil war ongoing, and whether you think this trial, in fact, as you've said, and we'll uh, go back to Ashley uh, Babbitt, whom you write about in the book, if you think this trial uh, will... uh, exacerbate the fissures that you think are responsible for this slow civil war? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been reporting about right-wing movements around the United States, around the globe, for 20 years. And uh, if you had asked me 10 years ago whether I thought civil war was possible in the United States, I I would have said no, um, uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, But what happened uh, with the language that was always there at the fringe of the right. There was always that kind of uh, radical civil war talk at the fringe. It started moving into the center. And then people who were at the fringe, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, carried it into the center with her language of the national divorce and Trump himself with his civil war language. After January 6, 2021, I noticed that a lot of American historians, uh, folks who are, are understand that history usually does move slowly, were saying we're closer to civil war uh, than we have been in a long time. So I decided to start traveling the country, talking to folks. And, and, and one indicator to me is that when I would, I didn't even have to say a question, I would just say civil war. And the answer from so many uh, people was, there were two answers. Uh, yes, and they were looking forward to it, or yes, and it was a sad inevitability, but they expected it. I don't believe it is an inevitability at all, um, but I see people arming up. I see a steady drumbeat of what I think of as a slow civil war of violence, of pregnant people who are dying for lack of reproductive care. Those are casualties. Uh, queer folks being criminalized in up to 20 states now, and all the kind of wreckage that comes from that, those are casualties. And and really, we see uh, on a weekly basis now uh, uh, armed men with AR-15s, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, Three Percenters, outside hospitals, libraries, schools. Um, so I think I, it's a simmering. And there's more violence going on now as I drove across the country. More guns than I've seen in 20 years of reporting. I think that it doesn't do us any good to say, could there be violence? Instead, we need to recognize that there is violence, and how are we going to respond? So, Jeff, if you could now go back to uh, Ashley Babbitt, the the woman who was killed uh, during the uh, January 6th insurrection. Uh, As you point out, she used to be uh, an Obama supporter. So, first, explain uh, 
how you can convey what what is Trump's political ideology and what did you understand from her about how she went from supporting Obama to becoming such an ardent uh, enthusiast for Trump? I think we can understand Trump's ideology. uh, There's a short word for it, which is fascism. And uh, really in the classical sense, not in the way that we might want to describe various right-wing figures, but uh, the true, the cult of personality and the pleasure in violence, um, uh, along with the, the sort of description of the rest of the world around him as, as decadent. Um, I think, though, that the way we understand the, the undertow that pulls people like Ashley Babbitt or so many of the other figures I encountered in my travels into that, into that sort of black hole of fascism is to recognize that it's not so much about any particular issue, um, but rather uh, it is an aesthetic, as fascism is, but also a, a theology. And that's why I said the prosperity gospel is... It comes from evangelicalism, the idea that God wants you to be rich, and the way that you know that is because he's made your pastor so rich. Trump's golden plane is evidence of God's intention. The next stage of that, which I refer to as a kind of Americanized Gnostic gospel, uh, a gospel of conspiracies, of initiate uh, uh, secret initiates, and um, of... Uh, 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 what Gnosticism calls waterless canals, but what Trump calls uh, the deep state. Um, This is sort of an appealing, the idea that you have this inside track of knowledge. And then we come uh, to martyrdom, um, which, of course, we know has always had this kind of pull, the victimization of white grievance, um, which is the sort of uh, the current that, that pulls white supremacy along. Jeff Charlotte, I wanted to turn to the far-right Georgia Republican Congressmember Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was just in New York to rally for Donald Trump for a few minutes before he was arrested, where she was drowned out by whistles. But she was heard loud and clear this past Sunday in an interview that you were extremely critical of on CBS's 60 Minutes with Leslie Stahl. This is a clip. The Democrats are a party of pedophiles. I would definitely say so. They support grooming children. They are not pedophiles. Why would you say that? Democrats Democrats support, even Joe Biden, the president himself, supports children being sexualized and having transgender surgeries. Sexualizing children is what pedophiles do to children. Wow. Okay. That's Leslie Stahl saying, wow, okay, uh, to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, Jeff Charlotte, you tweeted, as a journalist with 20 years on the far right beat, I'm going to close read 60 Minutes um, MTG segment. To start, MTG, Marjorie Taylor Greene, is as famous as they get. That's their justification, fame, a.k.a. popularity, a.k.a. the fundamental currency of fascism you said. And then you continue with 30 more tweets. Lay out your critique of this interview. It it really was. I I think of the the undertow uh, as sort of my inquiry into how to tell stories about fascism, with the understanding that a lot of the the ways that we've used in the past, um, uh, they don't work anymore. They haven't worked. Leslie Stahl in 60 Minutes gave us a master class in how not to tell stories about fascism. In that clip that you show, that wow, the arched eyebrow, 
Um, part of the problem is our imagine. I think Leslie Stahl's imagination that she still occupies the center. That she can dispatch that which she finds distasteful um, with an arched eyebrow. She's failed to recognize um, that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not a rising star in the old vernacular of politics um, because she's not trying to enter the same cosmos. They're trying to redesign um, the worldview to create a. Uh, a kind of, I think of fascism as a kind of lucid dreaming in which um, you can make these seemingly absurd assertions. Leslie Stahl uh, can't really contend with that using the frame that they have where we're going to have a polite conversation um, and we're going to, uh, she's going to rely on what she sees as the evident absurdity of that to debunk uh, what um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is saying. I think, too, it's worth saying, just simply saying, but they are not pedophiles. This sexual mythology of the right right now, it is a mythology. And I think to understand that you can't fact check a myth. The myth is not based on a claim to reality. Marjorie Taylor Greene knows that. She knows that her power is in spectacle, as fascism has always understood. It's an aesthetic uh, politics. Um, So what she did and... It really, in some ways, amounted to a defense of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, when you show B-roll of uh, Leslie Stahl uh, strolling along uh, with Marjorie Taylor Greene and marveling at her beautifully kept lawn, um, it's saying, oh, see, you thought this person was dangerous, but here I am walking safely along with them. Marjorie Taylor Greene is dangerous. We need to understand the danger. It's not that she's going to... Uh, go feral and attack Leslie Stahl is that she's going to remake uh, this country in uh, a fascist image. So, Jeff, if we could just go back. I'm sorry, I'm not sure you had an opportunity to answer the question about Ashley Babbitt and how she moved from supporting Obama to supporting Trump. And then also uh, a talk about uh, you say that the rise of fascism in the U.S. is part of a global fascist moment. If you could explain what you mean by that. Yeah, that's sort of uh, the, the microscope and the telescope. And Ashley Babbitt, and, and why I sort of focus so much on her story, is, is when I saw her killed on January 6, 2021, and it was a Capitol Police officer who shot her as she was climbing through the window, said to be that she was unarmed. She wasn't. She was carrying a knife. It's on the cover of the book. Um, the officer was a black man, and uh, as a student of American history and American mythology, I knew what the right would do with that right away. That's the old story. That's the lynching story. Um, that's the justification. And they would take Ashley and they would age her backwards. They started make, saying she was 35. they say she's in her 20s. No, she's in her 16. They made her smaller, an innocent white girl. So I was interested in who was this person, really, and discover that uh, she joined the Air Force at 17, motivated by 9-11. Uh, she was two wars deep, you might say, two war generations deep. She served uh, uh, eight deployments Uh, both theaters of combat, and she was a Democrat. She wasn't who we imagine. She modeled her life on the Coen Brothers movie, The Big Lebowski. She lived by the beach. And yet something about Trump in 2016, her first first tweet on uh, October, hashtag love Trump, gave her license to indulge in that which she'd been resisting her whole life. She was deep in debt by that point in her her company. It gave her the license to say, instead of trying to be a better person, 
what if I indulge myself? What if I let myself go into this undertow, give in to the racist feelings I have in me? She lived close to the border, give in to the misogynist feelings. And it felt to her, she experienced it, she described it as a liberation. She felt free giving in to her worst impulses. And I saw that play out again and again in the lives of people who you wouldn't expect. They weren't the usual suspects. You wouldn't suspect uh, would, would, would be drawn into that, that undertow. And so you said the global fascist moment. Yeah, I think it's worth understanding because the temptation is a sort of the American exceptionalism of Trump, this, this sort of unique figure who was able to open the door to, to change that vernacular. And, you know, as Democracy Now! does such a wonderful job doing, is, is there's fascism around, there always has been, but there has been around the globe now. So we have, you know, we have Erdogan in Turkey, the Trump of Turkey. We had recently the Trump of Brazil. There is a Buddhist monk in Myanmar who calls himself the Trump, the Trump of Myanmar, who uh, has led a kind of genocidal campaign. It is a global fascist moment that is coming out, out of all kinds of forces, of the failure of neoliberalism, of the pandemic. Uh, and I think to take it back to the intimate of uh, uh, these individual lives, of grief unprocessed, the grief at loss, she thinks her place as a white person is, is being lost. That's not a legitimate grief, but it's there. But also the grief of the pandemic, the grief of climate change. But she doesn't process it. She turns it into rage, and she calls that rage love. And that is what you see with all the January Sixers I spoke to, is driving them uh, into the Capitol and driving them now out into a more dispersed kind of uh, simmering conflict. And, of course, uh, this week, the Hungarian prime minister, the far-right uh, Orban, uh, tweeted um, his support for President Trump. And you have Marjorie Taylor Greene comparing Trump being arrested to Nelson Mandela to Jesus. Um, but Jesus. finally, you start the book with Harry Belafonte. You end with um, the Weavers, of course, Pete Seeger, part why? Uh, partly because I couldn't stand <laughs> to take my readers on this dark tour without some hope. But the hope I'm looking for is not the cheap grace of, we can do it. I spent a lot of time with the great Harry Belfonte, Lee Hayes, uh, a part of the Weavers. You, you know him from, from If I Had a Hammer and, and uh, uh, Kisses Sweeter Than Wine. You know Harry Belfonte from Deo. Uh, the Banana Boat song. I sang these songs in elementary school. I didn't know they were radical songs. I didn't know they were freedom songs. I wanted to understand the deeper struggle, the long struggle, to give us some hope. Because Harry Belfani, in his 90s now, he's an angry man. He's still angry. He knows that the civil rights movement, in which he was absolutely instrumental, it did not succeed at, at nearly all that he hoped. The struggle is long. So what do you do, he says. He says, it's not so much where your anger comes from, it's what you do with it. And what do you do? You sing your song, and then you give it away. You take it from the top, and you keep, you keep, you keep singing. This is this call to an imagination, a, a thread of beauty that I try to run through this dark story, because I think if we're going to find our way through the Trumpocene, uh, it's not going to be by returning to some normal that was never that great. Um, but by following the model of these, these, these long-ago singers, uh, in many ways, unfortunately, forgotten, um, 
but had a, a, a vision of a liberationist, a liberationist politics, um, which can what? meet fascism in a way that uh, uh, Chuck Schumer, say, cannot. Jeff Charlotte, we want to thank you so much. The book, The Undertow. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.